Good morning, church family. Thank you, praise team. Great job this morning setting the table. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. And this is the first time you're joining us or the first time in a long time. We're working through the gospel of Luke. And we are coming towards the end part of chapter 9. So, uh, you know, you can just pull it back there. Yeah, that's perfect. And, uh, and we're going to see here. Now, I've got to premise this sermon a little bit today because uh, it, there, if you just heard me preach for the first time today, you might think I'm being a, a pretty hard on the disciples. But let me, let me say something here. Uh, the disciples we're going to see today in the text in Luke 9, these are not the same disciples that are filled with the Holy Spirit and go out with authority and power in Acts, right? When the day of Pentecost comes, these are, all, these are changed men. But at this point, in this juncture in their growth, they are not the men of Acts 2, 3, 4 that we see where they're giving their life for Christ, right? They're just not spiritually mature and there yet, okay? So realize whenever I, I'm going to make comments about the disciples today. And as we work through this, I want you to understand that I'm not saying I am better than them. I'm not saying that we are better than them or superior to them. In fact, I would probably argue that if we were in their shoes, we would probably have made the same arguments and been fixated on the same things that they were, that they are no different than we are. And in some ways, even still today, they may not be much different where they are in Luke chapter 9 than where we are. So with that in mind here, what we're going to see is that it is possible to be close to Jesus and be so far away from his heart. Okay, that's what we're going to see emerge in the text today. And so if you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to Luke 9. I will warn you, we're still kind of dealing with video card issues. So it's in your bulletin that you got when you walked in. Uh, also, it is on the screen here to my right and left for now. And so let's, let's look at this passage together. Luke 9, 37. And I'm going to read in the New American Standard this morning. My ESV has been conveniently misplaced. So... Satan may have hid my ESV this morning, but the Word of God will be preached anyway, right? So, uh, beginning in verse 37, says this. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, came down from what? From the transfiguration of Jesus, where his face and his clothes were changed. And we saw Elisha, Moses was there. A large crowd met with him. And a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seized him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsions and foaming at the mouth. And, the only, and only with difficulty does it leave him, bawling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you, being your son here? While he, still, while he was still approaching, the demon slammed the boy to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let, those, let these words sink into your ears. 
For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them, so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. And an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, him who sent me, for the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is greatest. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow among with us, along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Amen. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, infallible word. It is sufficient for all that we need, and I pray he writes this truth on our hearts today. These disciples, as I mentioned in the introduction here, are not the same disciples that we are seeing in Acts. They have some growing to do. In fact, I would actually argue that the disciples that we are meeting here, you know, had sort of a high point, right, when we saw this scripture opening up. Uh, in Earlier in 9, if you'll remember, Peter said, what did he say? When Jesus asked, who are you? Who do people say that you are? Peter said, what, you are the... Christ, the Son of God. And then from that point, that apex point, when Peter says that, it's all downhill for Peter, right? Peter goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration and says, oh, wakes up from his slumber. Oh, I, uh, I, I'm glad I'm here. Let me build a tent for each one of you, right? Uh, and we see Luke is setting us up, right? Luke has been setting us up to get used to the crowd, right? That the ones who are trying to reach out and grab Jesus so that they can have something to eat or that they can have healing, they are going to be the same ones who will reach out to take him and put him on the cross. We're being set up with the crowd for that. But here, this is something utterly unique and different. This is unique in the fact of these are supposed to be kind of the, the main guys, the guys that get it, and they're not getting it. They're not getting it at all. In fact, what I would say is we have uh, feckless, feckless disciples. What does feckless mean? They are useless. They are inept. They are unable. They are disciples who lack, right? Uh, and so what are the areas that they're struggling with? Well, let's, let's just start by looking at the first one, verses 37 through 43. The first thing that we see is there is, a, there is an attempt at faithless ministry. I know this may sound odd, but it is quite possible to be doing ministry work and be busy about the king, so busy about the king and so focused on doing the king's work that you actually forget about the king altogether. That may sound odd, it may sound forward, but it is something that has happened to quite a few. And in this passage today, what do we see? They come down off the mountain. Another observation from Luke as we're reading this gospel and coming to an understanding of what he's communicating is this. When Jesus goes up the mountain, we're seeing very spiritual things happen. Spiritual battles, uh, spiritual revelations are happening on the mountaintop, right? When Jesus went to 
be tempted in the desert. He was up a mountain, right? That is where Satan saw him. That is where Satan tempted him and said, you'll just bow to me. I will give you this whole kingdom. Offered him a kingdom without a cross. And that would have been appealing at some level. Ultimately, Christ doesn't fall for it though. And here we see him again. Up on the mountain, right? This is a mountaintop experience. Could you imagine seeing the transfiguration? Could you imagine being with Peter shoulder to shoulder, seeing the face of Christ altered and seeing him in, in a glorified state with Elijah and Moses? And of course, Peter makes the mistake of saying, I'll build you a tent. And, and I've often thought, well, what if they would have just stayed in the transfigurated state? You know, I think Peter and those disciples would have been happy to just say, I'll just run back to town and we need supplies, but I'm going to stay here and stay where you're at. But it is not God's prerogative to stay up on the mountain, high and lofty, away from the people, right? It may be man's prerogative to stay up high on the mountaintop, right? How many of you have ever had a mountaintop experience with Christ? You ever been on a mountaintop experience with that very high spiritual high? And you just want to... Can we be honest? You just want to stay there, don't you? You don't want to come off of that. And if you say you do want to come off of it, see me later for counseling, right? That's a little bit odd that you would, you would be into that kind of a thing. You want to stay there. It is man's prerogative to stay up and stay. And as we stay in Christ longer, we feel the pull to want to stay away from all the mess that's going on around us, right? I feel the pull too. Sometimes when I read about things that are happening in our world and culture, it makes me want to call about, you know, some of you, some of my closest friends here and in other states and say, hey, let's go buy about 100 acres somewhere and build a wall around it and just let it all go, right? Because it's man's tendency to just want to pull away. But that's not God's tendency, right? God is coming, Jesus is coming off the mountain to do what? To engage with those who are lost. And, and this, this boy who is demon-possessed, who is demon-oppressed, he symbolizes something. He symbolizes here the work that Satan does in people's lives. I want you to pay special attention here to the verbs in this passage. Look at the verbs that describe this boy's issues, right? A spirit seized him. Satan seizes. Demonic forces seize the lives of individuals. They cause convulsions. And look at this. Look at this last verb here. It shattered it. Shattered. Like people's lives, they are seized and shattered and oppressed in ways that we don't fully even always completely understand and jesus here uh, he is willing and ready and desires to engage you where you are shattered and broken in your sin and he is ready to set captives free there now let me say one thing here this boy is experiencing medical difficulties that is brought on by demonic affliction it is not true to say that every time someone is physically ill, it is because of demonic oppression, right? Sometimes they just caught a cold. Sometimes it's genetics. Sometimes it's poor decisions with their health that put us in bad physical condition. But it is also equally unwise to say that demonic oppression never causes physical sickness. I don't think that's true either. I just don't think we should stand around in the waiting room at the urgent care and say, I wonder what demon's suppressing him, her, him, her, right? That's not exactly how it works. We shouldn't see a demon in every corner. But we should not be foolish enough to think that Satan and demons don't have a hand in causing problems for our health. Because they do, right? They do. Uh, so wanted to make that quick statement and observation. All right. Now, let's, let's look at this. This man here in this passage, this father 
does something that I think resonates with every parent in this room, right? He has a child that he has, he has tried to get help for. Remember, in the early part of nine, the disciples had already been sent out. So the disciples have tried to deliver this boy from this oppression that he had faced. And for whatever reason, the Bible doesn't go into great detail. We don't know how many times they tried to deliver. We don't know what happened when they did deliver, but they were unsuccessful in delivering this boy from the authority. The issue is this, right? We have to ask some questions then. First question is going to emerge is, why are they not able to deliver this boy from demonic affliction? The next question is going to be, stemming from that question, is it a problem with the authority that Jesus gave them when he sent them out? Did Jesus not give them sufficient authority to cast out demons? What's the answer, church? No, of course he gave them sufficient authority to cast out demons. So then what is the problem? Why are they not able to do it? I think it boils down to one simple word. Disbelief. At some root level, there is a disconnect and a disbelief in their heart. And instead of uh, going back to the master and going back to the object of their faith, they just give up. And they're just not able to do it. Right? Uh, it brings into question here, when we think about this, when you're talking about doing faithless ministry, it is trying to do things in the best of your power and your authority and your ability and coming up quite short. The father here does nothing wrong. In fact, the father here is a model for, for every Christian parent. When we are raising children, we should run to Jesus in prayer constantly for our children. Some of you in here are probably more seasoned and have been pastors, or have been pastors, have been parents longer term. Maybe it feels like you're a pastor when you're a parent, right? But uh, you've been you've been parents longer than we have. Tell me, parents who are more seasoned in the room, when do you stop being a parent? Do you stop being a parent when they turn 18 and you, they move? What about when they're 21? Is that when you quit? How about when they get married or buy their first home? Does that you can just kind of be like, oh, I'm done, right? No, we never stop being their parents. In a similar fashion here, we should never stop praying for our children, no matter where they are, right? Uh, J.C. Riley, a pastor theologian of yesterday, he wrote this in talking about the, the parents' need to constantly pray for their children. There are many Christian fathers and mothers at this day who are just as miserable about their children as the man of whom we are reading here in Luke chapter 9. The son was once the desire of their eyes and in whom their lives were bound up turns into a spendthrift. I think that's a, you know, they spend excessively. Or a prodigal a, and keeps company of sinners. And the daughter, who was once the flower of the family, becomes self-willed and worldly-minded and a lover of pleasure more than a lover of God. And their hearts are very well near broken. An iron seems to enter into their souls, and the devil appears to triumph over them and rob them of their choicest jewels, and they are all ready to cry. I'll go to my grave sorrowing. What shall my life do to me now? Now, what shall a father or a mother do in a case like this? They shall do as the man before us did. They shall go to Jesus in prayer and cry to him about their child. They shall spend there before the merciful Savior the tale of their sorrows and entreat him to help them. 
great is the power of prayer and intercession. The child of many prayers shall seldom be cast away. God's time of conversion may not be ours. He may think it fit to prove our faith by keeping us long waiting. But so long as a child lives in a parent prays, we have no right to officially despair than about a child's soul. Isn't that beautiful and right? Listen, there is a lot of competition and a lot of pressure for the soul of your precious child. A lot. And it's not like that's going, it's not like Satan's going to get up one morning and be like, you know what, I'm going to turn the heat back on this kid. No, he's not going to do that, right? If that's the case, if the powers and the principalities of darkness are going to pour all that they can to snatch your dear child's soul, how much more fervently, how much more dedicated should we be to prayer for our children then, right? So this man provides a good model for us on where we are to go, and that is to run to Jesus and depend on him. Second thing in being feckless here, uh, well, actually, one more observation before I move on. He, of course, heals this boy, and he makes an observation here. What's interesting to me is not that he heals them. We're not shocked by that. He says, you unbelieving, and uh, the ESV, I think, actually says twisted. But the, I like the New American Standard better because it's closer to the Greek word. It's actually the word perverted. You perverted generation, right? What does it mean to be perverted? Now, it's not just, you know, the context you're thinking in. Perverted means this. It means to take something at, that was created and intended for one thing and to twist it into something it was never meant to be. That's what it means to pervert. To take something that was good and right that God made and then to twist it into something different, right? So what is the issue here that Jesus is dealing with, right? Oh, faithless and twisted. Oh, faithless and and perverted generation. What's he talking about here? Is he talking about everybody in that community? Well, maybe. Uh, I think he's more talking about those disciples, right? What had he given them? He had given them the authority to do the thing that he just did. And they are falling short of it because they're because of what? He answers it here. Faithless. They have disbelief. And because of their disbelief, they are twisting the good thing that God had given them. And that is the authority to do the work he's called them to do. Okay? So this is a faithless ministry. It's marked by perversion. And it is marked by unbelief. Second thing here that we see is they have a filtered heart. Look down at 43. Look down at 43. say here in this verse he says and they were all amazed at the greatness of God but while everyone was marveling at this at what he was doing he said this to his disciples let these words sink into your ears for the son of man is going to be delivered in the hands of men now I'm going to be honest and confess something when I first read this I thought this text didn't really have anything to do with the previous text I thought this is kind of random that Jesus would just say this after healing this boy from demonic activity and oppression. But then you've got to, you know, the Christian life is not one where you can just sit back and by osmosis grow and see and understand Jesus more. You've got to use your brain and you've got to think and you've got to try to see the connection that Jesus is making, right? It's much like him walking on the, the side of the beach, right? You're trying to step into the feet that he was he left in the path he left for us. So let's see if we can think through why he would go to this after healing the boy. Well, everyone's marveling at what? What are they marveling at? They're marveling at the fact that he has power 
to make food, right? Remember in the previous section, he made the food, the fish and the loaves, uh, and fed 5,000. Here, he can cure disease, right? And everybody in the crowd is thinking the same thing. This could be the guy. This could be the guy to actually overthrow the Roman government and put us back on top where we need to be. The glory days, like whenever Solomon was king, when David was king years ago, whenever our treasury was filled with gold and all the nations came to us and we were on top, this could be the guy to deliver it. A guy who can deliver from demons, a guy who can deliver little boys, he can turn away the armies of Rome. And it's almost like Jesus understands and hears this thinking and he says, whoa, 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 you got this all wrong. You need to understand something. I came here for something greater than deliverance from Rome. I came here for something greater than delivering little boys from demonic power. I came here to fulfill God's mission and redeem the souls of little boys and little girls and moms and dads from every tongue, tribe, and nation, right? So he's pointing them here to what? It's, I'm going to go, this is going to the cross. This is not going into a political head here. We're not going to get in a fight with the, the, the policies of the day. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Again, Luke's setting us up for what's to come with the cross. But they did not understand this statement, right? And this is, this is what makes the second thing that makes us a useless disciple, a, a, um, a feckless disciple, is that we have filtered hearing. Is to have filtered hearing. You know... This crowd has is, is already been trying to get at him and touch him. And, and Jesus here knows what's going to happen. There's, they're going to try to lay his hands on him again, but it will not be for healing. It will be to drag him and to nail him to a cross. And, you know, Jesus is making this clear. I think I said this last week. This is actually the second time he has alluded to having to go to the cross in one chapter. The second time that we've seen here. And, and here it is again. You can't have the kingdom of God without the cross, right? He's making this very, very clear. This concept is emerging time and time again in Luke chapter 9. These people, man, they want a a conqueror to go out and capture the kingdom, and they don't want to have to endure much of the cross. And one of the things that we're seeing here, they do not understand this statement. Concealed from them would not perceive it, right? There are things that people just don't want to perceive sometimes in Scripture. People sometimes want to treat uh, treat the Bible like. Do you all, does anybody here eat the red ginger in town? You know, talking about the Chinese buffet. Back whenever we used to do buffets before COVID nineteen. Remember those days, right? You know, you go through a buffet, you just kind of pick what you want, put it on your plate, and consume that. The Bible doesn't work that way, right? A lot of times, the people want it to work that way. They want to just go through and really emphasize what we like to hear. You know, there are some churches they want to emphasize a healing ministry. They really want to put a lot into the healing ministry of Jesus and the healing ministry of the church, but they never talk about the redemption of souls. That is a twisted misunderstanding and lack of hearing. It's a filtered hearing of what the church is supposed to be about. You know, how do you know what God wants us to do? How do you know what you're supposed to hear? It's right here in the Word. You know, in the first service, I read this passage. It's a call to worship, and I want to read it to you now. It's connected to this and why I say you can't be a buffet Baptist. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Peter 1 for just a minute. And I want you to hear this from, you know, remember what I said about Peter. This is Peter coming out the other side, being much more mature. And he's reflecting back to this moment 
of, of his life in Luke chapter 9 and having been on the mountaintop and seen the transfiguration, he writes this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales which were made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance at this was made to him by the majestic glory. And he's talking about being on the mountaintop, seeing the transfiguration. Here's what he heard. He heard from the cloud. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven. And we were with him and in the holy mountain. And then verse 19. So we have the prophetic word. And then look what he writes here in this next part. Made more sure. Made more sure than what? Than an audible voice from a cloud off the lips of the Father. The Word of God, listen to what Peter's saying here. The Word of God is more sure to the believer than to hear an audible voice from heaven. Did you hear that, church? So what that means is this. You don't get to pick and choose what parts of the Bible you like and ignore the parts you don't. you got to take the whole thing as it is together in its entirety. Uh, I know a lot of people in the mountains here like to talk about, you know, God told me this and God told me that. And I'm always like, you know, <laughs> uh, let me ask you a question. Let's do a quick survey. Have you ever misheard somebody telling you something very important? Raise your hand if you've misheard. You haven't understood them correctly, Right. Right? Yeah, all of us, right? All of us have misheard somebody say something to us. You know what's a lot more helpful for me when there's something important comes up? Writing it down, right? Aren't you glad then that God has made it abundantly clear through his written word what he would have us to know? So we are not to just accept the certain passages that we want to accept and then not want to take others. Uh, let me make one more last observation about this filtered hearing before I move on. If you are a person, when I read to you from Genesis, that it is God's will that one man and one woman be married together, and that's God's definition of marriage, if that makes you cringe, um, or if, if I read to you, husbands should, wives should submit to their husbands, if that makes you cringe, when I first got in ministry, I'm going to tell you guys something. I would do counseling with young couples sometimes, when I first, and it's not as bad now as it used to be. It used to be a lot worse. Uh, when I would talk, when I would read that passage from Ephesians five, some women would look at me with daggers. I mean, they would they would be angry. I'm going to say this: if there's any passage that I read and it makes you cringe, that says more about you than it does about the passage. Right? That says more about we have drank in more culture than we would ever care to drink in at the expense and rebellion and filtering out what God has said. All right, moving down to 46. False values. An argument started among them. Which of them might be greatest? Jesus answered them, whoever receives this child is, in my name, receives me. Okay, here we go, right? So the fights are starting. We're not very far into Jesus' ministry and the fights are starting. What's the fight all about? Who's the best disciple and who's the best Christian in the room, really? I mean, who is the one who can really get up and elbow to the table? 
This, this values are all really reflecting a self-centered, world-saturated uh, view of values. That if I could just elbow my way up to the top and be next to Jesus, I'll be in the right spot. And what's Jesus' response? He takes a child. Now, how many children here do you think are keyed in on, especially small children, how many of them are keyed in on elbowing their way to the top of Grace Baptist Church or any church for that matter? And the answer is none, right? They don't even think that way. That's even not a part of the way they're thinking. I'm going to, I'm going to share with you a, a short story. You say, does this still happen in churches today? You better believe it. I want to tell you a story of a church far away from here, not in the mountains, perhaps out in an area where there's lots of cornfields. A church where we had a <laughs> church where we had a deacons meeting. And in this deacons meeting, they would elect a chairman and a vice chairman. And there were two guys that were in the running for it. One guy got it and the other guy didn't. Okay. And afterwards, we had a, it was early in the morning. Then afterwards, we had a dinner on the grounds that day. We had a meal together. And after that was over, we, uh, I, I was in the kitchen. I went to talk to him. And the guy that lost the deacon election for, and ended up being vice chair, not the main guy, and by the way, let me just paint for you a picture. The only really bonus you got for being chairman and deacon of this church was when we served the Lord's Supper, you got to stand on my right side and distribute the elements out to the other deacons. That was the only, that was the only kind of glory there was, was standing at my right side and passing out the, the elements, okay? That sounds like some glorious spot. I didn't stand at my right side during the Lord's Supper. Well, I'm going to tell you, it's not that glorious of a position, right? He was real short with me, just aggravated with me. And, and man, he was, he was upset he had lost and was not deacon chairman. He was mad about it. He was washing dishes. I don't think those dishes ever got so clean at that church. He was just scrubbing those dishes as hard as he could, being angry with all those deacons for not voting him in this chair. Can I just say something? That is a complete wrong attitude to bring into the church. That is a complete wrong attitude to bring into the kingdom. Right? What are we looking for whenever we, whenever we think about this? Well, we're looking to adopt kingdom values, not worldly values. Right? It's not about elbowing up to the table. Jesus highlights something here. He says, think of the children, right? There's something important Jesus is telling us here. Jesus is telling us how we treat children is very indicative of what we think about the kingdom and about the value of life, right? I'm going to tell you guys something. Did you know there's a, a group in this church that's infiltrating Grace Baptist Church and I think is intended to take this church over? Did you know that? all located in the children and youth department, right? That's where they all are. You know, they're going to eventually be the leaders that are grown up and are here one day. We, we got to be intentional, right? Some churches want to just push children aside. They don't want to, they don't want to deal with being intentional about reaching them with the gospel like we're doing at BBS this, these last uh, few weeks here on Wednesdays. And by the way, one kid came to know Jesus this last week, which is a praise, isn't it? One little girl did we got to be intentional about that, and we got to love kids the way that Jesus loved them, in a way that we point them to who He is, and we have to serve them as Christ has called them that way. We, we, we do that. We're getting at Jesus' heart, aren't we? And then finally, the last thing in being this is fretful perceptions. Look at 49 through 50, fretful perceptions. This is really worrying about God using someone you don't approve of, right? 49, John answered him, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. This is 
usually more of an issue of tribe and not doctrine, although doctrine can be an issue. Uh, listen, I'm going to tell you something. I love being Southern Baptist. Let me just give you three quick reasons why I love being Southern Baptist. First of all, we're 50,000 churches cooperating together to put missionaries on the field. You know what that means? That means that 50,000 churches are giving a portion of their of their money every week that comes in here. When you give here at Grace Baptist Church, a portion of every dollar that you give is supporting over 4,000 missionaries across the world. Okay, I'm very thankful for churches that can support one or two missionaries, but doesn't it make you so glad to know that our church supports thousands of missionaries every year? That's one reason I love being Southern Baptist. Two, I love the, the fact that, uh, you know, the media at least sees us as a big entity and we... We have people who can speak into truth, into a, a very uh, because they see us as a, as a large denomination, and so I'm, I'm glad for what that affords me. And three, I'm very thankful for the relationships I have. But Southern Baptists aren't going to be the only ones to go to heaven. I know this is a shocker for some of us. Probably not most people in this room. That's probably more of a shocker in the first service. But not Southern Baptists aren't going to be the only ones to go to heaven, right? I'm going to tell you a few things. Did you know I love Presbyterians? I love them. They're nerdy people that write a lot of books, but I love them, right? You know, I love, I love Pentecostals. Pentecostals are great because I'm going to tell you something. You would not have the praise music that you have to give glory to God had Pentecostals not been around. They have contributed to the kingdom in a way. And I'm going to tell you something. In both those groups, there's things about them I don't agree with, right? I mean, I don't speak in tongues unless I'm doing Greek and Hebrew from the Bible or trying to sing along with Eddie Vedder in a Pearl Jam song. That's the only time I speak in tongues, right? Uh, but some of you will get that later. And, and, I, and I don't believe in baptizing babies and some of the things that go along with covenant theology. But I'm so thankful that, that the churches that are those ways and are preaching the gospel and reaching people... Praise God for that, right? I even love Methodists, right? Methodists are very fixated on holiness, right? I mean, they used to be more so as they drifted a little bit, but the ones that are gospel-centered, they are definitely focused on the holiness of God and some of the writings that have come out of that denomination I'm very thankful for. I don't know if you've ever read John Wesley's work, but man, it'll move your soul. It's good. It really is. We, we, we are not the arbiters. We don't get to pick who... God uses to do his work. And quite frankly, don't we have bigger fish to fry than to be upset that God is using this group that didn't go to our seminaries or, or do things or believe every iota of the law exactly the way that we believe and God is using them to reach people. Don't we have bigger things to do? Don't we have children to evangelize and disciple? Don't we have missionaries to support? Don't we have a community here in Carter County that needs the gospel? And believe me, if every lost person came to church next week, the churches would not have enough seating for everybody in Carter County. There's plenty of lost people in Carter County for us to share, right? There's plenty of us for us to share and to go after. So let's not get fixated on that, okay? All right, real quick here. This is sort of... I've given you the thing of feckless disciples. Let me quickly give you the remedies here for devoted disciples in application. First of all, focus on the object of faith instead of the action. Focus on the object of faith instead of the action. We go back to the story of the, the, those who can't cast out the demon with the little boy. They, they didn't really go back to the object and believe the object of their faith was powerful enough to deliver that boy and deliver them in that circumstance. It, how does this apply to us now? Well, probably most of you in here have given your lives to Christ. 
you said, Jesus, I trust you 100%. You're my sole means of coming to, to salvation and being delivered to heaven safely in the hands of the Father. I, I completely repent of my sins and I trust you solely to deliver me to heaven. But this current situation I'm in, right? I trust you with my eternal soul, but this current situation, this momentary light affliction, these dark waters I'm going through, to borrow our Sunday school teacher's lesson in language this morning, I'm not sure I can trust you with this right now, right? No, no, no. When we're in, in hard, tough, dark situations, we need to focus again on the object of our faith, and that is Jesus. Second of all, we need to embrace all of God's revelation, all of God's regulation, revelation, and not just the convenient truths. You know, I know everybody loves a crown, but some, some verses call for a cross, some verses call for self-denial. Let's be honest for a minute. I'm going to put this in your kitchen where you live. Listen to me. Don't we all love sermons about the praise of God and purpose? Who loves sermons like that? I love sermons like that. Don't you love sermons like that? I love hearing about God's purpose for my life. And I love hearing about the praise of who God is. But those sermons about self-denial and take up your cross and follow me daily, those are hard. Those don't get as many amens. And to be quite honest, they don't get as many compliments in the foyer as people are going out the door, right? Because those are hard. But we don't have the luxury of saying one over the other. Third, strive to serve. Strive to serve. First, great, finding greatness, not an elbowing to the table, but in giving, not in position, right? Some of us in this church may never serve as deacons. But what prevents you from serving like a deacon. You may not carry the title, but who, who's to say you can't serve like one? Uh, better than, than any that we have even. You know, I would almost challenge us as a church. Let, let's think about this. Let's be givers, right? Let, let's not approach church by what we can get out of it. Let's, be, let's approach church what we can give. Uh, can, we, can we outgive each other in love towards one another? Can we outgive each other in encouragement to one another? Can we outgive each other in, um, in community and being there for one another, right? Giving is the way. Giving yourself away, not in position. We got to adopt kingdom values, use kingdom language, which is completely upside down from the world, right? The world tells you, remember self, promote self, be about self. And the gospel calls us, die to self, take up your cross and give. So, so that's what we must do. Third thing. Fourth thing, focus on your calling. Focus on your calling, what God has called us to do. Uh, you know, let's not get hung up on what tribe we're in to the expense of the kingdom to where others can't understand and see the gospel clearly. I'm all for having a tribal rally, and I think they're fun. I just came back from one. But let's remember, God is working with a lot of people in a lot of ways, and we got a lot to do. If I had to boil this sermon down one sentence. If you're a note taker, this is it. Here's what I want you to walk away from. When you leave here today, please remember this. This is the great, there's a great danger in this text. These feckless disciples, and some have stayed this way. This is the great danger here. Here it is. One sentence. Our greatest danger is that I'm using Jesus instead of Jesus using me. My greatest danger is is that I'm using Jesus for salvation, benefit, praise, purpose, instead of letting Jesus use me. 
seeking Jesus as a means to an end rather than Jesus being the end that we're seeking. We, we will stand and, and give account over that because true discipleship is not a matter of success by worldly standards. True discipleship is about surrender to God's will. Closing story here and I'm going to be done. church I was a part of became good friends with the church that split off of us. I was pastoring this church at the time. We, just, we found great friendship and camaraderie in one another and we found that we had the same vision pretty much we didn't see a point in what was once two churches who split off before we got there to remain two churches and try to bring them back together so we started praying and thinking should we bring before the churches to bring these churches together the split was once was to come back and be one church again we thought it was right we thought it was god's will so we began talking to our churches about it begin asking them to pray about it begin asking them to seek God's will about it and being younger and fresher out of seminary than I am now I underestimated how we can be at times there was a lady that called me shortly after we announced it the intentions to try to bring these churches together and start a new work let the old die on both sides and let it be a new thing she said, Pastor, I'm just, I just, I, I don't want any of this. Why are we doing this? I said, that's to reach this community and send a very strong message to this community that Jesus is king and that we want to reach this community in love and that we love each other in such a radical way. We want people to see that in the community and come to know Christ through it. She said, I don't want any of that. I'm quoting her. She said, I just want the sanctuary that I've been paying on my whole life that I've been a member here to to stay in that sanctuary, same name of the church. I want to die and have my funeral in that sanctuary that I helped pay for, and I want my pastor to preach that funeral. That's all I want. What's that sound like? Does that sound like kingdom values? Or does that sound like world values to you? You tell me, church. I said, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. She went on a calling campaign with her husband, and they called every member of the church to turn them against this new work starting in the community. And then we had a business meeting revival. You ever been to one of those? Here's how it goes. Business meeting revival goes like this. People that you ain't ever seen in prayer meeting, people that you ain't ever seen in Sunday morning, show up like it's a revival, except they're not there for God. They're there to vote and get their way, and get their way they did. Split that church in half by 50%. In that meeting, immediately, all the deacons resigned, immediately. The church moderator resigned, immediately. Sunday school director resigned, immediately. Uh, Worship leader resigned. Youth leader resigned. I was the last one left in leadership, and I resigned on Wednesday. That happened on Sunday. I resigned on Wednesday. And I remember walking to my truck. I wouldn't let Becky go to that last meeting where I resigned because I didn't want that kind of venom spit on her, okay? And I remember walking to my truck just feeling so defeated and actually contemplating walking away from ministry forever because I thought how in the world can I ever do this for 20-30 years I'll go back to construction and the mortar and blocks I crawled out from under and do that for the rest of my life before I'll go through this again and it was in this moment of utter discouragement and to be quite honest anger and hatred for the system that I had just been chewed up by and spit out that I was reminded of these passages 
and I was reminded of the fact that it is better, it is better to not succeed by worldly standards or your own plan or device, whatever it is, but instead to submit to what Jesus has. And it is better not to engage in the same type of tactics that those who are opposed to God's work and to just submit to who Christ is. What about you? Are you this morning angry with God? Has the outcomes not been able to be controlled the way you wanted to? Is the dark place that you're in not what you thought it would be? Or have you not been delivered like you thought you would? Will you submit to Christ now? Will you accept His values? Will you let Him lead? Father, thank you for this day and this text. Lord, we, we don't understand why things happen the way they happen, why they unfold the way they unfold, why we lose what we lose. But Lord, we, we are called here in this passage to trust you. We are called here not to build our own kingdom, but we, we want to avoid the danger of using you for our own ends. Lord, let, let that never happen. May we fail a thousand times before that happens. God, instead, come now. Use us. Use us as your people. May we always be a people who are submitted to you and what you would have us do. Lord, Jesus said it best as he waited for the cross. Not my will, but yours be done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today you've heard the gospel preached. You've heard God's will question is, what about you? Will you take what God has given you today? Take the gospel. Don't pervert it. Don't twist it to your own ends, but will you submit to it? Will you be a true disciple who is effective, who will, who will just submit to who Christ is? I'll be in the back to receive you as we sing this song of response together. Please stand.